Today we uh, come again to Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes, and our plan is to look at the last of the eight Beatitudes. Uh, I'll read them again to you, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So ends the reading of God's holy word. John Stott entitled his book uh, about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Christian Counterculture. Uh, Christian counterculture. God calls his followers to be pilgrims and strangers in this world. We are citizens of another nation. We're looking at the Beatitudes, as I've mentioned each week when I preach. These are eight qualities that Jesus uh, describes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. They describe a true believer, uh, what God does in the hearts of those who follow him, who trust in Christ. The word beatitude comes from the Latin word, which means blessed or happy. And there is a progression of the beatitudes. The, the first uh, six or so deal with our relationship with God, to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, hunger and thirst after righteousness, and so forth. And then they move to these last couple uh, to, be, to describe our relationship with others, to be peacemakers, and that we are blessed ironically, right after being a peacemaker for persecution for righteousness' sake. And so this final beatitude shifts to where he directs you. Blessed are you. None of the others have, have been directed like that to the second person. Jesus is now telling us as his followers what is going to happen to us. We will be reviled. We will be persecuted. We will have all manner of evil falsehood spoken against us. We will be assaulted, he says here, verbally assaulted, physically accosted, and defamed on account of Christ. And when this happens, we can be blessed. We can be happy. We can experience deep contentment. Now, if this seems unnatural, it is. If this seems impossible from the human standpoint to rejoice in a time of persecution, it is impossible just from the human standpoint. But we're talking about God working in us. Simply, what is the definition of persecution? Webster's Dictionary just says to persecute means to harass in a manner designed to injure or grieve or afflict, to harass another person. People all over the world are persecuted for a variety of reasons, and it's always been that way. Persecuted for their nationality, persecuted for their race, their skin color, persecuted for religious beliefs, all types of religions, not just Christianity. For the past two years, attention is being drawn uh, 
to the country of China where all, between one and two million Muslims of a particular sect uh, have been put in concentration camps. That's persecution. There's a great fear that there's going to be a genocide there uh, of some of the Muslim population. The fact of Christian persecution. Jesus said in the Bible, if they persecute me, they will persecute you also. He was saying that to his followers then, but it has application for us all. Paul wrote to his pastor student friend Timothy, who was a pastor in the city of Ephesus, and he said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. History tells us that 11 of the 12 disciples died as martyrs. We know from the Apostle Paul's ministry, from the beginning to the end, there were all sorts of physical uh, sufferings that were involved with that at the hands of other people. We know the history of the early church and even modern history that persecution has continued. Well, why does Jesus tell us in the Sermon on the Mount, or at least here in the Beatitudes, why are they persecuted? Why are we as his followers? And he says simply, for righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake. Righteousness here is not talking about self-righteousness. It's not talking about an arrogant attitude. It's talking about obedience that you give to Christ as a result of knowing him. That you want to follow him out of love, to love your Redeemer through action. So to suffer for righteousness' sake means to suffer for Christ's sake or for the sake of the gospel as we seek to obey Christ. And so this righteousness that comes from the gospel divides people. Uh, I can tell you as a, a pastor, as a preacher, as one who's taught the Bible most of my adult life, the gospel goes forth and people change. It changes people. Either people are responsive and tender and attracted to it, or they hear it and they become hardened and they're opposed to it. Rarely does someone remain the same when the gospel goes forth. They are either receptive or they're hardened, and we see that in the Bible that describes it that way. And so when the gospel is preached, some people respond positively, but then others respond very negatively. But people don't remain the same. Well, let's look briefly at what this persecution involves. The parallel passage to Matthew 5 is Luke chapter 6. He, Luke gives a summary of the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, but not as extensive as Matthew. And Luke begins this very same passage by saying, Blessed are you when men hate you. So persecution first begins with hatred. But then it moves in verse 11. It tells us here in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when you, they revile you. Uh, to revile means to accuse someone of a fault, to blame someone for something. So with persecution, it will bring accusation, and the accusations are always false. They're always false. Think about what Jesus was accused of. Being demon-possessed, being a drunkard, being illegitimate as a son, being a false prophet, being a glutton, and a liar, among other things. Were any of those true? No. But those were the accusations that were hurled at him. They were completely false. But that's persecution by the tongue. And for many of us, that is what we have and will experience most likely in our lives. And he says here, the wicked love to, you get the impression, love to persecute the righteous. 
because it justifies their own behavior. Rarely is persecution in the past or now, rarely is it explained as an attacking of core Christian beliefs. This is the most important. If you don't hear anything else today, please hear this. When we look at people that have died for the faith, it rarely is because you believe Jesus is the Son of God, uh, our only Redeemer who died on the cross for our sins. That typically never enters the picture. It is the moral implications of believing that. It is when your obedience to Christ comes out with the way that you live and speak about the way others live. That's where persecution comes, not typically over core Christian beliefs, whether you'll deny the Trinity or not. For example, John the Baptist. Here was John the Baptist, uh, the last of the, the prophets, Jesus said. And he, he goes out, he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins by the Jordan River. And Jews are coming out to him, which was odd, because baptism in the Old Testament was a way for an, a non-Jewish person to become Jewish. And so the, the religious leaders are questioning him, basically, why are you doing this? Why are you out here baptizing Jews? And they said, are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the Messiah? No. Who are you then? I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Well, ultimately, John the Baptist is arrested. And he's not arrested for scamming people out of money. He's not arrested for in, uh, inciting violence against the government. He's arrested under Herod, the governor at the, in that region. And then, but he, Herod liked to hear him, but John spoke true to Herod, and he told him, Herod, it's not right. You've got an illicit marriage. You have married the woman Herodias who was married to your brother. And what you're doing is morally wrong. And Herodias knew that, and it burned her up. And you know, ultimately, the, the dance by her daughter and so forth, and, and then requesting or demanding the head of John the Baptist on the platter. Now, why was John put to death? Was it because he, he was baptizing uh, Jews in the wilderness? No. Was it because he was preaching about the Messiah to come? No. It's because the moral implications that he brought to bear on Herod's life, particularly not Herod, but Herod's wife. So you and I, if we just talk about Christian truth, we probably will never be persecuted just for that. It's when it applies, and primarily it's around the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Non-Christians and Christians alike will all cheer, you shall not steal, you shall not murder, uh, you shall not uh, lie and bear false witness, and so forth. But when you begin, when we begin addressing you shall not commit adultery. And all the implications that come out of that about sexuality and marriage and, and premarital sex and, and so many things affecting our culture, that is what provokes people. Third, closely related to this in verse 11, is they will utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. It's slanderous. Persecution will involve slander. I had a uh, a pastor, uh, a, a youth pastor, called me a few years ago and said, could we meet and talk? And we're talking. He's at another church, and, I, and he was very, very upset, and he was very um, distraught. And as we're talking, I realized what he was distraught about is somebody in the church where he was didn't like him. And they had, he couldn't do anything to resolve it. Finally, I said, have you ever had an enemy? 
And he said, no. I said, well, you've done everything you can to make peace. You're not going to be able to do any more with this one. And I think many of us have a hard time with this because we just don't like being not liked. And yet, he says here that if we follow him, we will be slandered. Well, what's a blessing? Let's move on. I only have a few moments. Let's move on to what he says, really the main part. Verse 10, blessed are you, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He comes full circle. That's the very thing, same thing he said about the first beatitude. As we are adopted into family, into God's family, th- those who lost all because of their loyalty to Christ have gained much more. He said their homes may be destroyed. They may be banished or imprisoned or even tortured and slain. And yet heaven and paradise is theirs. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul when he suffered for Christ and when we do. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. Today, people talk about orientation. You know what orientation Christians should have? Future orientation. Somebody says, what's your orientation on an application? You say, uh, future. I'm thinking about the next life and evaluating this life in light of that. So the unbeliever, before I, I was a Christian, I lived by sight about present pleasures, about things I could see, this world's glories. But the Christian lives with an eye on eternity, looking ahead beyond this world and sees heaven. So what God is saying in persecution, you may be robbed of your good name, but you cannot be robbed of heaven. You may be robbed of your peace in this life, but you cannot be robbed of heaven. You may be robbed of possessions, but you cannot be robbed of heaven. It cannot be taken away from you. Make sacrifices now, he's saying, and suffer now with the faith that the kingdom is yours and can never be taken away. And notice what he says. He adds to this. He's not repeating. First he says the kingdom of heaven is yours, but then he says there's great reward. If you see a sign and you're driving, reward, don't you read it? If I see one that says houses for sale, I don't, or I'll buy your house. One of those tacked up on a tree or a stop sign or near there. But if it says reward, I'm going to look. Who knows? Maybe I saw that dog or cat or whatever else the reward uh, is for. Rewards are a good thing. Everybody likes the idea of a reward. Well, Jesus speaks of it here, a reward of grace, a great reward. And these are not like earthly treasures that can be taken through inflation or devaluation or thieves can destroy or moth and rust can ruin. And also rejoice that persecution shows our faith puts us in good company. We're in good company with the prophets who came before us. You may think, I mean, I read about the prophets. I read about Elijah and others. I don't tend to see myself like them. Do you? I mean, in a, in a sense, they were, they were super committed to God. And yet, we're told in the Bible they are people just like you and me, and they had weaknesses, and if Elijah could pray a certain way, then we can pray a certain way, and that there's no difference. But to be numbered with the prophets, he's saying you're, you're standing in good company when you are persecuted in any way for the gospel's sake. Moses was reviled again, And again, Samuel was rejected. Elijah was despised and persecuted. Jeremiah was repeatedly persecuted and abused. 
Jewish tradition tells us that Jeremiah was stoned to death. Daniel was persecuted. Amos was falsely accused and had to flee for his life. Stephen was stoned to death. Peter and John were cast into prison. James was beheaded. Paul's entire ministry was a long series of bitter persecutions. This is the company. This is the band of brothers we, we stand with. This week, if someone raises their eyebrow at you or demeans something you say because you're a believer, that's the company. It's kind of like you can look over your shoulder and say, you know, to this group, here we are. I'm with you guys. I'm with them. He means that for encouragement. The last thing he says, we're commanded, in fact, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. We think it should be just the opposite. Hunker down and bemoan your plight in life. No, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. In fact, Matthew puts that verb in a present tense, meaning it's, it's continual. Continually rejoice. Continually be exceedingly, uh, exceedingly glad. We think, well, how can that happen? One brief example in Acts chapter 5, we know there in the days after Christ was ascended into heaven and after Pentecost that the disciples had a boldness they had not had before. And they're taken before, some of them are taken before some of the same men that were on the Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus to death from the religious standpoint. The Jews had to make final condemnation. I mean, the Romans did. But in Acts 5, it tells us after they are dressed down by this court, so, so they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's rejoicing and being glad immediately when it happened. As a young Christian in high school, I, I was influenced by the ministry of what was called then Campus Crusade for Christ. And there was a training manual that Dr. Bill Bright had put together. And in the introduction of that training manual, there were these words that I read and I wrote them in the front of the Bible that I had at that time. And it just said this, and I, I think these were original with Dr. Bright. It said, whether Christians or not, all of us will have problems and suffer in this life. Whether Christians or not, all of us will suffer and one day die. If I'm going to suffer and one day die, then why not suffer and die for the highest and the best, for the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory? Rejoice and be glad, for the kingdom of heaven is yours. Let's pray together. Our Father, some of us here are going through or have been or will um, suffer persecution in some fashion or form because of our obedience to you. And we pray that even now, today, and in the days ahead, that you would increase our future orientation. Help us to think about heaven. Help us to think about the, not, the next life. Not to check out of this one, but to realize we are, we are moving toward the place where we are citizens. And we ask that you would use us and that we, like the original disciples, would be counted worthy to suffer for your name. Uh, at the same time, we pray for awakening, for awakening in our country and in our world to the gospel, that you would bring in multitudes of people to faith in Christ. It's truly a work of yours that no one can point to a person or a preacher or a particular church and say that's where it started, but that you are at work. We do pray today for our brothers and sisters who've suffered loss, that are suffering in a different sense. We pray for John and Ann Suma. 
Ryan and Elizabeth Lewis in the death of Carrie two days ago after this almost year-long battle with cancer. We pray for Pat O'Connell and the recent death of his mother that he would know your comfort and peace and others who are afflicted too. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.